Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Rod Coleth, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsing. With me, all the way across the pond, from the land of the Red Dragon, is the gold standard in ghost hunting according to the Wall Street Journal and the very big star of Japanese TV, Mr. Steve Parsons. Hey, Ron. I believe condolences are in order. I believe you've been ice skating. I don't think so. Huh? That's not what you said on Facebook. Yeah, Facebook lies. Uh, so you're well now. Are you, are you full of painkillers and better? Whatever. Okay. So anyways, we have a uh, show today, believe it or not. Yeah. We have an explosive cyclogenesis over here. A That's what? Cool. We have, in Great Britain, an explosive cyclogenesis. A Which weather is... bomb. A weather bomb? A weather bomb. We have a northeasterner here. Well, I think that might be, might be partly to blame. What's happened is, is uh, there's a perfect storm that got itself into the Atlantic and it's got our name on it, so... Uh, we're doomed, apparently. All right, good for you. Oh, okay. You know, just, thought, you know, just making conversation. Stiff up a lip and all that crap. Ah, you know, we don't complain over here. Yeah. Anyway, um, we have a. Uh, <clears throat> oh, speaking about that uh, complaint. Oh, yeah. I was uh, doing a little Christmas shopping on uh, Amazon, and uh, I found this amazing thing that uh, I, I just have to have. Oh God! More ghost it's, tech. Uh, Fortune telling bacon. Pardon? Fortune I thought for a, I thought for a minute you said fortune telling bacon. I did. You did? For $35, you can have 50 pieces of this fortune telling bacon. And oh, yeah. It's got good reviews, so, uh, yeah. So. Okay. If you're looking for the perfect uh, Christmas gift, go on to Amazon and get your fortune telling bacon. So, there you go. Okay. Moving swiftly on. Yeah, very swiftly. So anyways, <laughs> we actually have a guest on today's show, and uh, I, I know very little bit about him uh, because you dropped him on me the last minute. So, <laughs> Oh, hardly. I did give you a week's notice. Really? Yeah. Mm. So will you introduce the young man, please? I will. This is Paul Rowland. He is a fellow investigator. He's from my old stamping ground in the northwest of England, uh, but Paul is more than I, I see. I asked Paul to come on because I know that you have a fascination with ghost tech, and Paul is certainly an innovator when it comes to ghost tech. He's been exploring. Really? I'm, I'm going to let Paul tell you more, but he's he's uh, he's been exploring uh, paranormal tech in uh, certainly innovative ways, looking at uh, interactions of light, sound, and the paranormal. Cool. So. Uh, I'll let you. I'll let Paul tell you more about that. Uh, so, good evening, Paul. Good evening, Steve. How are you? Very well. Good. And good evening, Ron. 
Good evening. So, Paul, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, basically what you do? Uh, You're an investigator, but tell me more about this uh, tech side of you. Well, yeah, I I got interested in paranormal. I've always been interested in electronics. Um, I really got interested and motivated by paranormal, where you have the TV show over here called Most Haunted. (coughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to use that word. (coughs) Anyway that program but they inspired me for a strange reason that they weren't using anywhere near the type of technology i wanted to be seen for investigation purposes and when i did a bit of research on the net i found that the equipment i was thinking about didn't exist so that inspired me to start building various technologies okay so you want to describe some of these tech first of all do you have a website or anything where people actually can check this out yeah yeah um some of the equipment I've got is on my website, not all of it, but uh, mm-hmm. that's called paradoxelectronics.com. Paradox Electronics. Okay. Dot com. Um, initially, I wanted to produce a machine that was more relevant than um, a standard EMF meter. So I started building a device that I called a Sentinel, which can be adapted to detect um, either levels of light, electromagnetic fields, or electric fields, or vibrations. And I built a couple of these machines, thinking it might be um, a handy portable machine, but they're slightly too sensitive. But I've still got those machines, and I use them for various different purposes. Um, I started getting interested then in alternative methods of lighting, because there are lots of investigators that go out, of, out at weekends using infrared night vision cameras and standard flash photography and relatively speaking they're not producing many major results so i thought must be a different ways of using light so as far as infrared is concerned the um, led emitters just can um, emit a continuous stream or a beam of light so i thought about pulsing the light instead of a beam of light So I've got machines now that can pulse the light in varying frequencies. They rise and fall because I'm not sure what frequencies to be aiming at, but I've got a rough idea now which produces pictures for me. So Mm -hmm. they cycle through various frequencies. I also can do that with uh, ultraviolet light and blue light for still photography. That requires the camera to be tripod mounted because I have to use a slightly longer exposure uh, setting for a photograph, mm-hmm. which is usually about three seconds long. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other major interest, which continues to grow and grow, is EVP, which uh, a brief explanation is record um, an investigation or a visual and play that back some time later, hours or days later. If you're lucky enough to get a response to your calling out questions, you can't reply to it in real time because you're back home. So I wanted machines to give the potential of real-time responses. And I know there are machines already out there, but I obviously wanted to invent and design things of my own making. And after a few machines that didn't produce any results, I started to get some that, that did very, very infrequently. They certainly don't give me results every single time I go out. But the, the process of, um, of design has been getting better and better. And the last time I was out to a shop not far away from where I live, we got some really very interesting responses. I believe we got vocal responses through them. Interesting. Now, some of the you mentioned pictures earlier. Are, are some of these pictures on your website as well? 
They are, yes. If, if you go to, the, to my website, paradoxelectronics.com, um, the very top of the page, there's a link to a YouTube video. This was um, shot in a shop near where I live, not far away. Underneath that, there are several links to photographs at a pub in Chester called the Old King's Head. And a couple. Of, I think there's one link to uh, another house in North Wales called Plastag. And the, uh, the older pictures at Plastag are quite grainy. Uh, it can be fairly said that a little bit indistinct, but they are misty figures of an outline of something that was very close to me in the house. Mm-hmm. The ones at the Old King's Head are, I believe, clearer. So I, th- I think they're more distinctive. You know, I'm curious about photography. I mean, we, we're doing so much with photography, and yet we don't get these clear photographs of humanoids at all. We get these myths, we get these shadows, we get these uh, intermittent, uh, you know, shapes. Uh, why do you think that is, Paul? Well, I, I presume you're talking about using relatively standard photography, a flash going off. My belief is um, when a flash fires from a camera, it's sending out a massive energy pulse of light. And if you can visualise what we're trying to capture a photograph is of um, a spirit, a ghost, whatever you want to call it, it hasn't got a physical body like you and I have. So we've got to think about capturing that image slightly differently. That's why I started to use blue and ultraviolet light. It's a a much more subtle light. Um, I use LEDs to drive the light. They're not tube lights or anything like that, and it's much more subtle light. And the photograph, I think I've made, um, it, it's on my website there, of a, what I believe to be a Civil War soldier. Now, that was taken using the blue and ultraviolet lighting. And albeit it's not as clear as I would like it to be, there's enough image there to make out the figure that was identified by someone other than me as a Civil War soldier. Mm-hmm. Why do you, I mean, why do you, we don't know what a ghost is, so we're trying to photograph something that we're not aware of. We we know it doesn't have a body, evidently, although there have been many reports of uh, almost solid uh, humanoid shapes. Uh, how, I mean, how do you set your parameters? I mean, uh, what is, if you're going to photograph something, you're going to know what you're attempting to photograph as far as, you know, what is it? Is it, you, I wish... Are you attempting to photograph a gaseous cloud? Are you attempting to photograph uh, light? Are you attempting to photograph the solid object? I mean, so you, you must have some parameters. So in your mind, what are those parameters you're, you're, you're looking at? Very good question. Very good question. First of all, with conventional photography, you find a flash at a solid object that reflects that light back to the camera, and that's the image the camera uh, records. Mm-hmm. So that's conventional. Now, with a ghost, I'm making an assumption it hasn't got a solid body. Okay. So I've got to provide energy to illuminate what could be an electric field, a very light a light field of some kind, an energy field, however we want to describe it. And there's no definition to this. I'm sure you, you'll have come across this before. Mm-hmm. But by using predominantly ultraviolet light, um, if you look back historically to experiments, ultraviolet light has got more energy to it than any other colour of light. And this was what triggered my interest to use it. It's um, a shorter wavelength of light, but much higher energy. But to our human eye and to the camera, 
it appears to be slightly, uh, well, it's a lower energy. We can't see ultraviolet quite so much. So this is why I have to use a longer exposure image on a camera, anything from three to five seconds. And it depends on the location and, and which lighting system I'm using and how much light I'm actually projecting. But I'm my thought process is I'm providing energy from the ultraviolet light to light up something that's got very, very, very little form. As you've mentioned before, perhaps you could think of it as um, a gaseous figure that is relatively only just visible, and I'm trying to provide more energy to illuminate that. Paul, there is a couple of problems that uh, I can sort of popped into my head as you're talking. The first being that the use of of UV light kind of flies in the face of accepted wisdom regarding spirits because we've got 150 years of spiritualists telling us that spirits love and perform best in red light, uh, which is the opposite end of the light spectrum. Yeah. Uh, But moreover than that, what we're trying to do as investigators surely is to test the veracity of a claim being made by a witness that they themselves saw a an apparition, uh, some form of uh, visual phenomena in the case of photography. Now, with very few exceptions, because there are some very rare medical conditions, far rarer than the percentage of people seeing ghosts, uh, are you know your average human can't see ultraviolet or infrared, so what they're seeing is in the visible spectrum. So what is it that's driving you towards uh, looking outside the spectrum where people are reporting phenomena and going against the accepted grain uh, of spiritualism and indeed communications that are alleged to have come from spirits themselves that say that they need red light in order to uh, manifest and perform? Well, first thing I normally say when, if I'm giving a bit of a talk about what I'm doing, everything I do is experimental. Mm-hmm. So um, although it's flying in the face of spiritualism, i.e. the red light, I personally haven't been told red light is the colour spirits like to be illuminated by. I have actually spoken to a couple of mediums over the years that have said that the ultraviolet light is something more favourable that they personally feel is... Um, going to produce results. So I, I've got information, albeit from only a couple of sources. So I, I'm, it's not that I disagree that red light is the right colour. For me, using ultraviolet light is an alternative. Um, if we're not getting photographs using red light, green light, blue light, whatever, mm-hmm. then why not change it? Why not try something experimental? So I'm just literally throwing something different and new in the mm-hmm. works to try and get results. But we still have this this problem, though, don't we, that the witnesses are actually seeing the anomaly in the visual spectrum within the sort of much narrower bandwidth. Yes. Well, you said we can't see UV light. We can. It's on the edge of our perception. We can't see it. And some people will have a a lower threshold to it than others. Well, we we can just about see it on the edge of our perception. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the actual frequency of the ultraviolet light, but we can barely perceive ultraviolet and we we you know we can barely perceive infrared but there are there are uh, one or two medical conditions uh, the one that uh, the artist turner famously suffered from which allowed uh, the uv filtering in his eyes was was defective and so he saw predominantly more biased into the ultraviolet range which gave him a weird sort of perspective on color and led to those magnificent sunsets but you know from my perspective as an inv- 
as a fellow investigator, you know, starting from the basis that someone saw a ghost, uh, then I would start with the, the you know, uh, trying to test that claim by looking in the visual spectrum rather than outside it, you know, working from the known. Yeah, but the, the, um, if someone says they've seen a ghost, have they got a witness to say? Have two people seen the same spirit or ghost at the same time? I suspect not. So... What so what are we looking for, then? Well, this is what I was going to say. I think we're, we're, are we, we should ask the people who have seen the ghost, can you describe, did you see the background clearly as well? Could you see through the ghost at the same time? Could you see colour in the ghost at the same time? And if, you, if the answers to those questions might lead us on a little bit further. But as far as the photography side going... I, I know from experience that cameras are filtered against UV, so their, their perception mm-hmm. of it is very, very low. My interest in using it is because it's got more physical energy. Um, right. So that's why I wanted to use it. And again, predominantly because if everyone else is using flash photography or whatever colour they want, and then relatively speaking, they're not getting results, then I need to try something different. There's no point in following mm-hmm. the crowd going the wrong way. Did it? Did it? Uh, did your experiments? Because I, when I've so I've followed your work over the years, and I've noticed that you're adding uh, colours of light. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you've got reds, you've got greens, blues, ultraviolets, infrareds. Have you tried the subtractive method? Because obviously, if you start from the basis that white's containing all of the colours of the spectrum, um, and that the, C, the CCD, the imaging sensor in the camera, is just about capable of resolving ultraviolet and uh, just touching into ultraviolet and just touching into infrared. Uh, what about subtractive methods where you, you remove the colours that you don't need from the, from the flash spectrum, from the white spectrum? Um, from a flash point of view, I would, I've not tried it, Steve, but um, I, what I'd have to do is make a, a multicolour LED strobe and, as you say, first fire a photo with all the colours on and then slowly remove one colour at a time. Uh, but, uh, should be, I was just thinking it should be relatively straightforward given a huge, yeah. powerful flash gun and then using something like Photoshop just to look at the RGB channels. Yeah, I, I, I prefer not to use the Photoshop method, though. I prefer to use projected light, controlling the colours of light, rather than Photoshop. So I, I, I want equipment that can work on the spot in real time because um, too, too right. much can be read into the fact if you say it's been filtered through Photoshop, people will question that every time. Right. I, I prefer to use a, a projected light technology that is a repeatable mm-hmm. experiment at any time. Okay. Well, I, you know, I can understand where he's coming from, Steve. That's why I asked him what he was aiming yeah, for. Yeah, me too. I was just, I was just looking at it from an... Looking at it from a slightly different perspective. What his parameters were, and that's, you know, that's what I identified, and that's what he identified, and that's what he's going with. I noticed one thing, though, that, that you mentioned in, in the course. You, you talked about uh, the uh, time lapse, and we know that that's a, a can be a, a huge mistake in, in photographing because you can get so many false images. Uh, I mean, that's what... Uh, Henry Mumbler did when his uh, was producing ghost photographies back in the 1860s, and I know even myself when we first started investigating it back in the 90s uh, with infrared, 
we would get these uh, images of people on it, and it took us a while to realize that uh, the the shutter, uh, the speed was was the, was open for so long that people were walking in and out of uh, lens, and we were picking them up as uh, you know images, right? So that, that that's a difficult thing. How do you control that for you, Paul yourself? Well, usually, um, m- most of the investigations, I- I'm-, I'm fortunate I get regular access to a pub near where I live, and mm-hmm. usually there's only a maximum of about 10 people, and I instruct them at the start that if I'm going to take a photograph, I'll say to them all to remain still, seated, or stand wherever they are, and whilst I take the photograph, and I time the- I always take two or three photographs at the same time, and I specifically instruct people not to walk or move in the photographs at the time. It's not to say that occasionally ones go wrong, but as soon as I recognise there's an issue with one of the photos, it gets discarded. Mm-hmm. So long as I'm, I satisfy myself because I'm standing behind the camera, I try to satisfy myself that no one has moved in the shot. That's the best I can do at the moment anyway. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you could always use a uh, control camera as well just to make sure that that doesn't happen. I know I, that, yeah, yeah I, I occasionally have two still digital cameras with me and on occasion, when, when circumstances allow, I will have the two cameras facing each other and take photographs that way. Right. I know, I know that, for instance, when uh, Butler uh, from the a, uh, AAEVP used to uh, do EVPs, uh, he used to videotape it all. And if he got the, the EVP on the video camera, then it was uh, discarded because it was believed that it was not a true EVP. It was uh, really just an audible sound that was picked up. Well, yeah, um, and I, find, I have a difficulty in that as well. Any, any recordings of EVP that weren't heard at the time, I have to question where they come from, and there's not always an answer to it. If you, if you go to your, my website, and I invite anyone to go to my website and have a look at the, the incident, I think I called it at the party shop in Mould, which literally is a, a shop that sells clothes for parties and what have you. But there's the last section of a video that we shot on the upper floor in that shop, and there were two camcorders going at the same time, so there's two recordings. And you can hear us saying what we're thinking we're hearing at the time. But there's about 40 minutes of recording where we're believing that we're hearing breakthroughs from the other side through equipment in real time. And it's not that it was I had to record it and play it back later to hear this. We, the group, there was about six of us in the room. We were all hearing these noises at the same time, and you'll hear us making complaints about it. Paul, how does your equipment differ from, say, the ghost box, which is also uh, now sold as a real-time communication device? Oh, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, the the, the ghost box is more or less uh, a channel-hopping radio receiver. Um, So it's got the potential to listen into the electromagnetic spectrum where radio waves are picked up. My equipment is, as such, not a radio receiver. It doesn't have... Um, uh, demodulation that a radio receiver has in it. Mine is straight through audio from whatever type of sensor. So that can be an electromagnetic sensor. I convert uh, audio into magnetic and then magnetic back to audio. I convert audio into light um, that's projected into a block of quartz crystal and I pick the light back up again, turn it back into audio. And more recently, just... um, I've started using natural minerals such as fool's gold 
and they are very very unusual receivers they do they do sense vibrational energy okay we actually have a we actually have a comment question from uh, pararex and this is on full spectrum and uh, psi says that uh, it is very good uh, using spectrum spread to see ghosts and I asked why, and he says, because the distortion we perceive with our primitive equipment does not pick up the full-spectrum smear that these things produce. You need multiple senses to mesh a more complete image of the actual spirit. There is also uh, temporal frequencies that need to be accounted for as well. So any comments on this? I'm not sure what they mean by temporal frequencies. They're, you could have to account for, I suppose, frequency of light, i.e. red is one frequency, green is another frequency. I, I'm, I'm not really sure where the question's going, actually. There's a lot of uh, mixed metaphors in that. I'm not quite sure. The full-spectrum cameras, yes, they're very, very interesting, and I could do an awful lot if I had one. I don't have one. Mm-hmm. So you just have to break a camera and you'll be fine. The thing is, though, I still come back to this problem that I've always had with full spectrum and investigation use outside the visible range. Yeah, it it has its place, like thermal imaging, um, but we have to address that that most crucial question. We, you know, we you you said before about what what are the witnesses actually seeing? Well, we've got accounts in going back to the 18, uh, 1880s with the SPR Census of Hallucinations. Um, and we've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of accounts of people seeing apparitions. Singly, multiple witness sightings, repeated sightings of the same apparition by people who don't know, uh, didn't know, have any prior knowledge of other sightings. These are all within the visual light spectrum. And, you know, I wonder about the validity of using, for example, thermal imaging for using full spectrum, which is essentially at its cheapest $50 form is a broken camera, as Ron said. Because what you're going to get is an anomalous image. You're going to get something that you're not used to seeing and you're going to interpret it as being anomalous or more likely to mislead the investigator rather than provide anything evidential. You're actually manipulating the image when you think about it. Exactly. I mean, you, you've you've done the TI course, Ron, and you know how it, it presents a picture, but it's not a true photograph. And people people see thermal anomalies, which are a, a visualization of emitted infrared energy, and they're interpreting it as as if it was a photograph rather than uh, a thermograph. And the two of them have you know quite different uh, results and. I think people are going to get more misled by by these full spectrum cameras. Well, they're, they're already accepted. Uh... I know they're accepted, but I mean, Paul's doing it in a controlled, you know, a controlled way where he's thinking about it. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But this, you know, sort of general spread of of full spectrum photography, you know, rush off and buy one for eBay for fifty bucks. I think it's just causing more. You know, it's like it's like we're, we're going to be into orbs again shortly. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, we we got to take a break right now, so uh, here comes the tunes. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Parsons and Ron Kolick and our special guest, Paul Rowland. And we'll be right back after the following messages right here on Tojanet, Pararex, Planet Paranormal, TuneIn, Ghostbox, and whoever else we have.
Monday mornings just got scarier. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be. With remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased, we'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly gooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous. As we give the awards to the Parrax family. Greetings and felicitations. I am Ron Kolek, New England's own Van Helsing. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the Blonde Bombshell. You are here at the elegant Benford Hall, the Downton Abbey of Menace. And we would like to extend a formal invitation to you. To tune in every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Ghost Chronicles and Next Generation. On Tokenet, Parax, Ghost Channel, and Planet Paranormal. You can even listen live on your smartphone with your tune-in app. I'll catch the podcast on iTunes. And now, time for tea. part two of ghost chronicles international and again highlighting the american view of little old britain and the fact that we all sit around in the drawing room drinking tea but tonight we're not going to be drinking tea in the drawing room because we're talking to fellow investigator innovative fellow investigator paul roland mm-hmm. who in addition to the many uh, ways of investigating the paranormal involving light and sound. I've just noticed on his website he's invented a new concept of jet ski and a tidal gravity engine. So, yeah, uh, yeah both of which need funding. So, come on, guys. Uh, Kickstarter project, I think, Paul? Uh, yeah, yeah, yes, please. All, all funds are welcome. There you go. Before, so, we, before we go on, I do want to mention we heard the Pararex commercial, which, of course, was 
the theme from the Adams Family. And today we're very sad because Ken Weatherwax Pugsley on the Adams Family has gone to the other side. So if you get a uh, little Pugsley on your recorder, now you know why. Oh, I didn't know that. I haven't seen that one today. No, sad news. Sad news. Carry on. Sad news. Anyway, um, yeah, so throw me again there. Um, can, I, can I come back on a couple of points that you made, Steve? Absolutely. Um, I agree with you about cameras. Um, the more you get more complex with the full-spectrum cameras or um, thermal cameras, the more you're distorting the type of image that you're trying to capture. And in my view, by using bog-standard off-the-shelf camcorders and still cameras, you can always go back to that same camera and say, well, this is how it records an image conventionally, and this is how it's recorded it using blue and ultraviolet light. So you haven't got an image that has been messed up by the internals of the camera. That's that's one way. I, that's one way I look yeah. at using type of photograph. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And when we were doing the orb uh, project, one of the things that we were uh, that stymied us for a lot of years was the fact that. Uh, there wasn't a digital 3D camera that operated, you know, exactly the same as a point-and-shoot 3D ca- uh, digital camera uh, until Fuji came along and brought one out. So it's replication, and as you say, um, you know, it's important that we're able to demonstrate that the camera is operating in a known and controlled fashion rather than just something randomly bought off eBay with some claimed modification by the makers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I have a question, actually, and we always, you know, talk about illuminating the the uh, subject, no matter what it is. What about backlighting? Instead of let's reverse it. Instead of illuminating the project, let's backlight the project, the subject. Um, what's your thoughts on that, Paul? Well, uh, are you talking about? Um, projecting the light towards the camera from a distance. Exactly. Um, it could be tried. The only problem is with my method of, let's say, a two or three second exposure, you tend to get just a washed out picture with lots of light. Oh, yeah, that would make sense. You've got the beam of light coming towards the camera. I have tried that, but there wasn't any results from it. In actual so fact, Ron, I can also help you out with that uh, question because uh, several years ago, for a very bad uh, live television program called Paranormal Investigation Live, uh, we suggested the use of backlit uh, photography. Uh, uh, Then into a room full of uh, artificial smoke. Uh, Backlit photography is is now currently being tried by several groups um, in different versions, but what they're doing essentially is is filling a room full of smoke and looking for patterns in the smoke now and then interpreting. Yeah, but that's not the same. I'm talking about. Well, they are doing it backlit. That's the that's the that's the that's the way it's developing because you, they're, they're sort of blinding the cameras, as Paul said. Yeah, I mean, it's now you're you're creating distortions. So exactly. There's a difference. But with a back, I'm talking about straight back look, and and you can you know you can go around some of that by using various filters. If you're looking for specific things in specific ranges, you can use different filters to uh, just illuminate that particular, or just to eliminate the other ranges. I should say. Well, from a yeah. technical point of view, if you don't put it in to begin with, you don't have to filter it out. So it, Paul's method would actually work better than what you're suggesting because he's well, putting well, because, in Well, no, because, I mean, we're thinking about it. We're, we're always talking about, all right, we're, we're projecting on something. This way, something 
would be between, absolutely between the light and the camera, rather than just bouncing off stuff, which is what lighting does. I mean, then, you think about the laser, the laser grid that's used yeah, so often. Right, but even that's used forward range. And, and the theory behind that is that it breaks the grid, but in reality, it's not because it's, how can it break the, it's only breaking it from the projection to the, the end. So if the backlit, it would be, I don't know. I'm just, I gotta try well, how, you, how, how are you going to get any detail apart from an outline? Um, you know, you're going to have to, if it's... Small steps, gonna, baby steps. Well, Paul's, Paul's a technical guru on this one, but I still, you know, I, I, I can see a big problem there. You're going to get lots of I don't know, uh, silhouettes of ghosts. I, I think you could end up <laughs> photographed with lots of speckles of light on. I, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm actually going to try this because I, you know, you can use like umbrellas and stuff that they use for photograph. There's no way you you can't and screens basically. Well, you, no well actually, you you've, you've you've hit a technical issue with the with the imaging sensor itself because you're going to get photon overload and you're going to end up with speckles of they're going to be very orb-like uh, as the photons overload the individual photo sites on the sensor all right i'm going to experiment with this and i'm going to come back to the show and tell you how they made out so anyways uh, back to paul okay. not for me <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you uh, another method that i've tried and i've only experimented with a couple of times uh, it takes a bit of setting up but i've got a small led projector mm-hmm. and it's it's powered by 12 volts so it can be portable and I've built a light, uh, a carrying rig where I can mount the camcorder and feed the output from the camcorder into the video projector, project that in front of the camcorder, not towards it, but away from it, and then use the camcorder potentially as an image amplifier. So if anything was to move in the shot in front of the camcorder, that would pick it up, be reprojected by the video projector, and then picked up by the camcorder once again. Does the camera have to remain absolutely stationary during that? Because if the camera projector is, is a moving rig, then... The two have got to be bolted together. The two have got yeah. to be stationary together. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, they can be on a handheld carrying system, but I prefer to use it on a tripod. What about well, objects? Actually... What about... Sorry, well, physical was... objects. Okay, go ahead. Feedback loop there. Um, if the two of them are together... I'm just clarifying this in my own head because... Uh, if the two of them are, are, are together in a handheld rig, how does it cope with, say, as you pan around a room? Because obviously the fixed objects in the room will move relatively then to the camera. Yeah, all, all that you end up with is, um, be, because the, the LED projector, the one I use, is quite small, it's relatively low-powered, so uh-huh. it, it's not going to over-illuminate anything. The potential is, hypothetically, if a, if a ghost or a spirit was to walk in front of the camcorder and video projector the camcorder might see it, send out the signal through the video projector, and then the camcorder sees it again and reprojects it round as, a, as an image amplifying loop. All uh, right, okay. Okay, so anyways, we have actually two quick questions. One is from Christians from the para, I mean, the uh, Tojina chat room. She wants to know if ultraviolet and black light is the same. And the question from PSI in the Parax chat room says, has Paul ever used any radiation sensors while investigating? So answer the easy one first. Um, as far as I know, UV and black light do describe the same light. I mean, Steve might say something slightly different. I would say there are different frequencies of ultraviolet light, but I, I'm, as far as I'm aware, they describe the same thing. 
exactly the same. In fact, I, I typed the answer to Kirsten before Ron asked a question. Sorry. That's <laughs> black, right. light, black light uh, is UV. It's just one of the common names for it. Yeah. yeah. As far as radiation is concerned, right, very good question. The answer is no, but it ties in with another uh, thought of mine. How could a, a ghost or a spirit possibly emit radiation? The, the radiation has to be emitted from highly radioactive materials. So I don't believe a ghost or a spirit would ever be able to emit radiation. Well, that's not exactly true because there's radiation all around us, and so you don't need true. highly active... Yeah, 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 I agree. But what I'm saying is I don't believe a ghost or a spirit can emit radiation. I'm not saying about the background. I agree with that completely. Mm-hmm. You might detect a disturbance, but that would mean your radiation detector would have to remain stationary throughout an investigation. Agreed. There's also there's also lots of technical problems. One of the uh, research-funded... The projects I've got from the SPR at the moment is actually using a Geiger counter. Um, and there are quite a number of technical issues relating to uh, the use of uh, radiation detection equipment. In terms of the paranormal specifically, there is no uh, research-based evidence. Uh, in fact, there's very little anecdotal evidence that uh, Geiger counters serve any useful purpose or that there is any link between emitted nuclear radiation and the para- and people's paranormal experiences. The whole thing is based on one or two anecdotes rather than, for example, with the electromagnetics, you've got Persinger's work uh, that dates back to the 70s. But with, uh, with uh, nuclear radiation, there's almost nothing. Uh, a long search through the, through the archives of psychical research reveal no suggested uh, hypothetical links other than a few crackpots on the internet. Um, yeah. So the idea of taking a Geiger counter on a ghost hunt is probably a waste of time. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree with that, yes. Unless ghosts, of course, were made of lead. <laughs> I have to ask uh, you a question, uh, Steve. Many times you have said that, that amateurs did create most of the discoveries, and they've gone against the, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. the things. And yet this... The last statement you said they're crackpots because they attempt to do something that's not believed. I mean, you yeah, can't have no, things. Well, you can. There's no inconsistency in what I've ever said. I've said what I've said is that a lot of these bits of equipment that uh, appear on eBay are are going to just mislead the investigators. But I've always, as you rightly point out, I've said that the greatest scientific discovery in the main were made by amateurs. But and here's the link. Amateurs who have upped their game, I have always and consistently said, if you're going to produce results, if you're going to uh, get evidence and then present it, it has to be done in a credible fashion. Paul's doing it. He's, present, he's testing an idea. Uh, he's looking at the results. He's reevaluating. That's what science does. It doesn't rush off, grab an EVP and have it on Facebook the next morning and claim it's proof of the paranormal. If amateurs want to be credible, if amateurs want their their research findings to be accepted, then they have to up the game. All of the amateurs who made the discoveries in archaeology and in astrophysics and in astronomy and countless other areas of science, they were working to scientific standards. That's not exactly true, because the first archaeologists were actually using dynamite to 
They weren't. They weren't archaeologists. They weren't archaeologists. The first archaeologist was uh, back in the 1920s, and they started the idea of stratigraphy and going down in stages. What you're talking about is guys that uh, 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 I forget the the other. Basically, yeah, they were rich, rich landowners who blew things up or employed teams of diggers to bring it all home and put it in a curio cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the name of the British archaeologist now, but he, perfect, he 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 pioneered this idea that the deeper an object is, the further back in time, and that you go back documenting every st- every centimetre of the dig mm-hmm. and look, marking the context in which the item was found, what it was adjacent to, how, it, how deep it was, what it was in relation with. That is archaeology. Right. And if amateur investigators want to measure stuff, that's great, but measure it properly. There are ISO standards. There are international standards for measuring things. It, you, you don't get accurate temperature data. Uh, but there is by... no ISO standards, standards for measuring ghosts. No, there isn't, but there's an ISO standard for measuring every physical variable, and what most investigators are measuring are physical variables, like temperature, like light, like humidity. But are we attempting to measure something that we know absolutely nothing about? No, no. Look at what ghost hunters are actually measuring, and I'm sure Paul will jump in in a minute, because what ghost hunters are actually measuring are physical variables. They are measuring anomalies within the real world. The temperature in the room went colder. Somebody saw something. The humidity dropped. Uh, an object appeared. All of those are physical. Therefore, there there is a there is a means of measuring them. What well, you're well, talking well, about is then extrapolating that into something unknown because the investigator doesn't understand what they've got. Whenever something happens like that on an investigation, if someone calls out and says they've got a cold spot or they hear something or see something. My my typical setup will be a video camera, a still camera, and one of my digital lighting systems all bolted together on a a rig, on a tripod. And if someone speaks up and says they're sensing something, I instantly jump up to take photos because I want to see if I can capture. My my important part is recordable evidence, so that can either be on video or still image or audio. So I I usually try and have equipment set up... um, if someone shouts out to say they've sent something. Now, typically, this happened in the King's Head when I took the picture that has been described as the soldier. A couple of people heard something. They thought they heard faint footsteps. I stood up starting taking photographs. On the one particular photo, we've got... Um, it's through a doorway, and it is about 12 feet away from the camera. But one of my fellow investigators, Steve, is a physical person on the photo. But in the same image there is a semi-transparent figure that I believe to be the ghost. But that was based on them actually hearing something. Well, that's shut, run up. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean... No, no, what I'm saying is, though, all, all all the methods of investigation are relevant if they produce results, i.e. if someone says there's a cold spot and I try and take a photograph, or anybody else, and if there's nothing there, well, that's the end of the story then. Nothing else can be made of that cold spot. Mm-hmm. But if you're lucky enough to capture an unusual anomaly on that that coincides with the cold spot, then you're getting somewhere. I can hope. Well, one of the things that, I mean, Paul is absolutely correct in what he says, but there's a slight difference in the techniques because if somebody says there's a cold spot, my first instinct would be to measure the temperature. Yes. 
I, I'm quite indifferent to cold spots. I'm not quite sure how relevant they are. I'm, I'm not ruling them out. And Ooh, I agree with you, Steve. Straight away, I agree with you that measuring them with physical apparatus that you can actually see a temperature is far more relevant than someone holding their hand in a spot and saying, it's cold here. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you, need, you need a piece of technology to say what the actual temperature is and all around the person as well. But there are. Difficult. What's interesting about temperature is that uh, it's one of the it's one of the uh, few physical variables where we've got a demonstrable link between uh, a physical change within the environment, a subjective experience of a change within the environment, and a concurrent anomalous experience. Uh, if you go way back to the early 1900s. Uh, there have been a number of investigations both taking place within the seance room and haunted houses uh, where people have objectively measured the temperature to a an acceptable standard using calibrated equipment. And you have people saying the room changed temperature. You have the equipment verifying that change in temperature. And you have people also saying that... Uh, they had an experience concurrent with the temperature change. So I think temperature is one of the, the very few physical variables that we can actually start to make links with anomalous experiences. Speaks well, uh, physical uh, variants, we actually have another question for Paul, and that is from uh, Pararex, and it says, uh, have you ever attempted to measure with uh, barometric pressure sensors while on a ghost hunt? No, but again, I would like to be told why, why barometric pressure would be relevant to a ghost being present or a spirit being present, because that's a measure of, of atmospheric pressure, not necessarily of, a, of um, a ghost that wouldn't have a physical presence, a spirit presence, but I'm not quite sure. I don't have the equipment to do it, but I'm not quite sure I would really want to. I'm not sure mm -hmm. it's relevant. Okay. I, I, I could uh, jump in because we do actually measure barometric pressure um, and the relevance of measuring barometric pressure is twofold. Uh, one, barometric pressure directly relates to air movement um, and has been responsible for, in one documented case that we, we investigated personally, uh, the movement of doors within a building because the barometric pressure was different to either side of the door. And secondly, it, it also results in people having anomalous physiological experiences, mm -hmm. ear-popping sensations and pressure-in-the-head sensations, which are re related to their interpretation of barometric pressure changing. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you want something more? See, I'm always I'm always looking for recordable evidence, video or photograph. So well, that's a good, you, that is a recordable evidence. It's a, it's well, it is. A, if somebody says there is popping or, or a door is moving, and you can measure, we can demonstrate that. No, what I'm saying is that isn't the, the the pot of gold at the end that we're all looking for is photographs and video recorded evidence of mm. ghosts and spirits. The, the, the pot of gold is an explanation of the witness's experience, surely. Because it may not be anomalous. I, well, yes, exactly. But if it's anomalous, then... Well, yeah, I mean, everybody wants to see a ghost, I agree. But what we're, our primary, uh, the, the primary mission objective, surely, is uh, getting to understand the witness's experience. I saw a ghost. Well, why did they see a ghost? That yeah. has to be the key question, surely. Yes, yes, I, I, I agree. And have you ever found a satisfactory um, answer to that? Has, have people ever given you any reason you believe that there's something different about the person or the sighting? Oh, definitely. We can, we can, I can give you dozens of examples where the reason for them having an anomalous experience was not paranormal and was yes. 
it's down to them interpreting a normal and natural environmental uh, parameter uh, in, a, in, in a way that, for example, infrasound, it, 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 it has quite profound effects on some people, and yet yeah. they can't hear it, they can't taste it, they can't smell it. If you stick them in a haunted house and tell them that the place is haunted and they have these weird sensations, they're going to turn around to you and say they're paranormal sensations, when in actual fact that they're not. And we can relate that to... To most of the, with the exception of taste, we can we've got well researched, well well uh, uh, investigated accounts where most of the main body sensory systems are being fooled by the environment. Yes, and I come across that quite a lot as well. People are often in fool, often fooled by their environment, whether it's optical or sounds in particular, especially in old buildings. You know what they're like when they creak and groan. <laughs> jump at the drop of the Sounds head. like me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but um, generally speaking, I rule most of those things out unless it becomes something significant and of interest. But it is difficult to control these circumstances. If you're with a group of people who are not used to paranormal investigation, you find they'd be quite jumpy and jump at the wrong things. Well, that's true enough. There's, there's one other little bit of kit that I've experimented with that I, want, I haven't quite finished yet. will be a sensor system uh, linked via remote cable that comes back to an amplifier to a light system. So if I've got uh, a team member that's within the room, not far away from the camera, and he's walking around or someone says, I've seen something, I've sent something in the corner of the room, I want them to be able to take the sensor into the corner of the room that will be... Um, sensors to electromagnetic vibrations, energy vibrations, whichever type of sensor I, sensor I want it to, and to convert that into light. So if there is a vibration from the sensor, I'll be sending the vibration back to the location and then try and photograph or video that. It's an interesting concept. Just sort of, um, it's, a, it's a feedback loop, isn't it, what you create in there? exactly, yeah. yeah. Is, yeah. Are you going to end up with a sort of ghostly version of, of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in effect by over-amplifying <laughs> the signal? Well, yeah, but what if that produces the results? What if that... Well, it's <laughs> well yeah, it's <laughs> just got my mind racing here. We, we, we've got here the uh, sort of a resonant ghost being re-resonated. Yes. That could have some interesting yeah. implications, couldn't it? Yes. See, Ron, well, I told you this is the man you should talk to. <laughs> well, that's a piece of all I'll be using that in the new year, so that will be online quite soon. Um, we've got about five minutes left, so do you want to give out your website again so people can um, have, a, have a look at, particularly the, the, the recent video, uh, sorry, the picture from Chester, and read more about the equipment? Yes, it's www.paradoxelectronics.com, and the Paradox Electronics is all one word. At the top of the opening page, there's a link to the investigation at the party shop in Mould. There's a, a video, it's on YouTube. And I do invite anyone to give me any comments if they believe they're hearing anything that we might believe might be paranormal or paranormal nature. And we do comment on it at the time. You can't help us hearing commenting about it. Um, so I'd be interested in any feedback from that and the picture of the soldier in the old King's Head in Chester. Excellent. And how, and how are the ghosts of Chester doing since I left? 
all the time. But I find I find <laughs> like friendly ghosts. I I don't have any problems. Some people want to run away, but I really enjoy. Uh, but I was going to say, there's uh, there seems to be an epidemic of demons in the UK now, and I I imagine after that program visited the pub that you're investigating, uh, I was surprised. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised that there wasn't an outbreak of demons going on there. Do you know, I'll tell you a quick interesting little story about that. After that programme I visited, we visited the, the pub two days afterwards and we had a most unusual experience. There was no one on the top story of that building and we moved into one of the bedrooms, one where they'd have trouble with the TV and the taps and we weren't even particularly set up. We'd only just gone in the room and three of us heard a key rattling in the door behind us as if someone was trying to lock us in. They locked Fred I, in. <laughs> they left Fred behind. No, it wasn't Fred. But I was in the position, I had my back to the door, quickly ran outside, no one there, no one upstairs on the top landing, ran downstairs, none of the staff had moved from the bar. So that was an interesting experience. Well, it just goes to show that, you know, as it said, we joined a very brief time I spent on the on the show, that, you know, they're in haunted places. Weird things do happen occasionally. It's just that they have a an ability to miss it most of the time. Uh, well, I was going to say the same thing. They're not actually looking for the same things we are, though, are they? No, they're not. No. What they're looking for is for something grand and televisual. Uh, now, that being not... said, we got to wrap it up. So we want to thank uh, Paul Ro- uh, Roland for joining us today and... Uh... So it's uh, time to say goodbye, and don't forget, next Tuesday night at Circles of Wisdom in Andover, I will begin the series of the new uh, red light seances. Uh, Use blue light. Yeah, well, I don't think so. And uh, till next week, uh, from Steve Parsons and yours truly, good night and God bless. Thanks, Paul. Good, good night. night. Good, good night. night. Thanks very much. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good law.